Good morning. Welcome to all of you here in the room this morning, and welcome to you if you're joining us online from the comfort of your bed. <laughs> I'm glad that you're with us. This morning, we have the great honor of welcoming Shaniqua Brokenleg, who is um, a priest in our church and who serves on the bishop's the presiding bishop staff um, in the Department of Racial Reconciliation. Did I get that correct? Yeah. Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care. Thank you. Cool. Justice and Creation Care. Thank you. <laughs> and so this morning, we get to have a wonderful conversation between uh, Shaniqua and Winnie. So let us pray. God of all creation, we give you thanks for bringing us to this new day, for the community and relationships that surround us, that challenge us, that support us to be the beautiful people you created us to be. Be ever present with us in this conversation. Open our hearts and minds to hear you inspiring us to be love out in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to issue a reminder that when and if you have a question or comment, please come up to the microphone and go ahead and use it. It helps us to be inclusive of not only our friends who are joining us online, but also folks in the room who join us through the hearing loop. So please use the microphone. Thank you. Um, if you're watching online, welcome. Um, we are not an early morning people, I'm aware of this, so um, glad you're here at 10. I'm glad to be here at 10. Um, this is such a delight for me. I have known Shaniqua, I think, for 20 years. We met um, uh, because we were serving on the, on the anti-racism committee of the Episcopal Church together as just children. We were kids. <laughs> we didn't know why we were there, I'm sure. Um, and it was a remarkable opportunity, as well I remember it, of people from all over the country, really different experience, um, talking about um, what the anti-racism programming and training of our church should be from a really wide variety of experience, um, which was fascinating. It was an interesting, I, I'd almost forgotten about that, but um, that that's how we know each other. So Shaniqua is a leader in our church um, on the staff of the presiding bishop currently, um, as the office, program officer for uh, racial reconciliation on the larger team that reports directly to the presiding bishop on racial reconciliation, justice, and creation care, which is practically everything, right? Just all the things. Um, and a remarkable group of people together that help us to generate that, coordinate it, report it, um, and help to understand how we, how we shift it and change it as well. Um, a really remarkable scope of work and a great team that does that. Um, and Shaniqua has joined us because it's pride here in Atlanta. If you're watching from not in Atlanta, you might be surprised to know that we have pride in October. Um, just to keep it going all year long, this might help. Um, and it happens to be the right weekend for it, right? It's also um, this Monday we celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. So we have a, a, a wonderful confluence of, of things to honor um, here um, at St. Luke's. So we're just gonna have a conversation and I'm gonna start with, Shaniqua, welcome to St. Luke's. 
and we're so glad to have you here. A number of people here have gone through the sacred ground training, so just so you know, you are a celebrity in our church. Um, <laughs> be ready. There might be some autograph books that have to come out. Um, tell, us, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know that you have lived in, on the West Coast in Seattle, um, and you've lived in Minnesota and Wisconsin. You're currently in South Dakota, which is where you were a child, if I understand correctly. And you um, trained for ministry at CDSP in Berkeley, is that right? Yeah. So those are some facts, right? Um, how do you tell your story of origin? Ooh. I usually tell people I grew up in South Dakota. I've lived all over. Um, I don't know. Uh, like, yeah, growing up on both in uh, Sioux Falls, but also on the reservation, um, and I grew up, uh, I grew up thinking that the Episcopal Church was actually an Indian church, um, and uh, so I'm going to have to tell you this story. So, um, my grandpa was a priest on the reservation, and so I thought, and most people who come to our church were all Native, and so I just assumed our church was the Indian church, and um, <clears throat> you know, in the reservation, you get health care from the Indian Health Service which we all call IHS. And so going to church, I would see the pyramids that said IHS, and I just assumed that the Indian Health Service cared about our physical health, but also our spiritual health, and that the church was sponsored by them. The other thing that did not help was that my grandma was diabetic, and I knew that we always worried about her like blood sugar and her electrolyte levels. And so I, and I knew that the electrolytes helped move things around in her body to help her be healthy. And so it wasn't until I started college that I learned that I was an acolyte and not an electrolyte. I've been calling myself an electrolyte that whole time as a kid. I think you are an electrolyte. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a background in epidemiology. Yeah, that's what I did before I became a priest. Tell us about that, what does that mean? Well, it's not a skin doctor, but um, basically you, um, <clears throat> the way I explain it is kind of like uh, you're kind of, you know, in, in Lakota culture, eagles uh, are kind of the liaison between God and the people, and they watch over the people um, and make sure they're okay, and then if there's something wrong, you know, they kind of send messages, and that's kind of what an epidemiologist does. We watch over the health of populations um, and look at um, health outcomes and statistics, um, and uh, I did that on, in the Great Lakes area for um, the tribes. There's 34 tribes and five urban Indian areas there. And I still do consulting sometimes for them. They'll call me and do a few different things. And um, I loved it, and I love it. And I originally thought I was going to be a bivocational priest, but the bishop was like, that's your calling. You need to go do that full time. Oh, we don't have any jobs for you. And I was like, oh, OK. That was that story. <laughs> I'm guessing that there are, one, if you can already hear it, Shaniqua is a fantastic storyteller. Um, we'll, we'll convert you um, by story. Um, I, I'm guessing epidemiology and, and the priesthood probably share some things in common. What, what do you bring from epidemiology into the priesthood? Oh, that's a really good question. I, you know, it's funny because I didn't mean to be an epidemiologist. It was kind of an accident. Like, I missed the deadline for school social work, and then I got recruited by the, <laughs> by the public health person. I didn't know what... I thought I was going to be inspecting restaurants when I did school public health. I had no idea what I was doing, and that's how everything happens in my life, it seems like. But, um, but uh, the, the connections, I think, are there both about health, right? You have spiritual health and physical health, and as a, a, a wink day or a two-spirit person... Um, we're called to be healers. And so you can think about how do we heal emotionally and spiritually and physically and mentally in our communities. And so um, 
I think that's the connection. One thing that I think we can learn in our church from public health is we do a lot of evaluation in public health, and I think our church doesn't always do so much of that, but we're doing it like, you know, we just got done evaluating sacred ground, and we just um, did the, the racial justice audit recently, and I think we're going to be doing it again. Um, and so those, I think we can learn that from each other. Uh, I think sometimes epidemiology is very... Uh, logic sort of focus and churches are more well you know woo woo and kind of out there and so but I think it can be really helpful and I know when I when I was doing public health everybody would laugh at me because like you don't seem like an epidemiologist and I'm not I don't have like the I can be nerdy but I don't have like the I don't know what it what to call it but the very like I don't know the like robotic kind of style of personality (laughs) so tell so in, in our in our state, but all, all over our country, um, there are just some rough conversations around gender happening, um, especially around our children and how to support them as they um, understand to express their gender and ask us for support in that. And you use the term two-spirit. Um, and one, I might be assuming this, but I, 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 it's my turn to being a different kind of Indian, that we have, <laughs> right. is what we've, we've been joking about for 20 years. Yeah. Um, and it's still funny, yeah. Um, I actually think the culture I come from has more to say about gender in more helpful ways than we have in this culture. Um, and I think the same is for, y- for you. Can you t- tell us about the identity of Two-Spirit and the healing, um, and then however you want, and then also this, this notion of being a healer that you talk about? So, uh, okay, so Two-Spirit is actually an invented word. Mm-hmm. Um, that would probably came about like in the 80s or so. Uh, every indigenous community that I'm aware of has a role for, uh, for like two-spirit role, but they have their own name for it. So in my culture, we call it wink day if you're male-bodied and blokawi if you're a female-bodied person. And it's this role that walks between the masculine and feminine and the natural and supernatural. And we're called to be like in these liminal spaces. And we're called to, because of that, um, we're often we're the translators, uh, counselors, because we could see both sides or all sides of a story. Um, and then we are called to bring balance to the community and also um, heal, heal the community. And um, in, in Lakota culture, uh, and, and most other tribes had a role similar to that. Some had, it's more complicated, like some tribes have like six genders. So you've got cisgendered male, female, transgendered male and female, and then two-spirit male and female. If you, okay. Uh, mine, we have like three or four, depending on how you, if you think a female-bodied or a male-bodied two-spirit is two different genders. Um, and uh, lost my train of thought, we're called to be healers. There was something else I was going to say. Oh, when all the, when Indians got moved into urban Indian areas, so we got in like the 60s and 50s, they thought we weren't cosmopolitan. And they're like, well, if we take Indians off the reservation and put them in cities, then they'll become like white people or something. I don't know exactly what the thought process was, but that happens. There's all these Indians in different urban areas. And so, unfortunately, not Atlanta. But um, but when they brought them together, the different people understood those roles, and they all each had their own tribal name. And so they wanted to come up with a name that worked for everyone. That's how Two-Spirit, the word, that word came about. Um, and uh, in Lakota culture, for a community to be considered whole or healthy, there were several different roles that needed to be there. And so you needed to have uh, men or women who heal with medicine, 
which we would call we Chashawakan or, or uh, medicine men, medicine women. And then we have men and women who heal with, who heal with ceremony. Um, and then we, we have, um, uh, what am I forgetting? Oh, what we call Itantan, which is like a, a political leader. And then we have another type of leader that's more of like a strategic or military leader and a wink day. So if you have all of those people, oh, and a heoka, if you have those people in your community, your community is considered whole. And so if you don't, you're missing it. So it's kind of an honor to have that in your, in your uh, family or in your community. And I totally forgot what your question was, but, but I hope I answered it. So the point, all I wanted to raise up is that we, are, we talk about, gen, the way we talk about gender, even in our most holistic sense, often in our public life, is that there's normal and there's some people there's something wrong with, mm. and at the best case, we might help them, right? As opposed to their essential, there are people that are essential to our communities mm -hmm. and serve essential roles and functions. We, in the church, we might say there's a beauty in that diversity, but what you're saying is, essential to the wholeness of a community. Absolutely, right? yeah. Right, which is a, a wonderful shift in our perspective. Right? Um, so then my question is, that sounds so beautiful. Did that mean, like, you, your journey has been, you know exactly where you fit and who you were and felt supported? What, what's your journey been? No, but, but, um, <laughs> but traditionally that would have been happening. And I think, you know, growing up with colonization also comes patriarchy and uh, misogyny and all of those other racism, all those pieces that come with the, the joys of colonization, um, historical trauma. Uh, my, growing up, my grandpa was an Episcopal priest, and um, having lived with him, he and my grandma would tell me stories about Wink Day. That's our word for that thing for me. And I just assumed they told all my cousins these stories, but they, they told me these stories, so they knew before. I, and then growing up, they introduced me to people in the community. They didn't tell me they were Wink Day, but they were like, okay, this is, I won't use names, this is so-and-so who is uh, a medicine person healer. Mm -hmm. This is so-and-so who is the curator of our, our museum. And this is so-and-so who's a medical doctor or farm. He, did, he could do the doctor things. He might've been a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner, I don't remember, but he was like a doctor. And then they didn't tell me those people were Wink Day until I like came in. So you think of coming out as like this big risk you take, but I think coming in as a native person, it's you understanding that, that role, that sacred role that you have, and then coming into your community to live into that role. And so then when that happened, then they're like, okay, well, you've already met these three people. Um, you know them, they are Wink Day. Also, you can look to them for support or something if you have a question that you don't understand. And so that happened. But then uh, when I was a teenager, I moved to live with my dad in, in Seattle and, and ended up homeless, actually. And there was a lot of struggles around sexuality and, and the acceptance of that. And I think in school, growing up on the reservation, I never had problems with that. Uh, I think one time I got teased in sixth grade. Somebody said the F word. Um, and the teacher like stopped the class and gave a whole lecture on Two-Spirit and how those people are to be treated. And never again did it come up until we went to the high school where there's a lot of white students and then they come with their own homophobia and things like that. But um, So I guess it's a little bit different process. It wasn't always easy. And I think a lot of times I really struggled with how to fit into the larger LGBT community because I think there's a lot of racism in there and also misogyny and they don't understand gender. Uh, in the same way, I think, that we do in Lakota culture. They, they also don't have that 
that same understanding of the sacred responsibility you have to your community. So, you know, growing up, I was taught that the two spirits, you know, you have to serve your community. So with great response, with great uh, honor comes great responsibility or great privilege comes great responsibility. So you have to serve your community. And when you get called and asked to heal somebody or asked to pray for somebody or bless somebody's baby or, you know, go to the hospital at 2 a.m., kind of like being a priest, you have, you have to go do those things. And so uh, that's kind of what, what, what I understood. And I think, and this is going to be terrible to say maybe, but I think sometimes in the LGBT community, it's very self-focused and uh, almost hedonistic sometimes in, in some ways. Um, I think we have learned over time that community is so important and that, that not having community, I think, is really harmful. Um, but I think that's a lesson that we, as Lakota people, already knew coming into that. There's so much there. So I want to go back to the beginning. Um, Sorry. No, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah! it's, it's fantastic. Fantastic. Um, so you, you know, you, you talk about said something about colonialism, and so I do the, I know that I do this in my brain that say that the Episcopal Church and the Church comes with colonialism. Mm. But you were talking about your grandfather, an Episcopal priest, and in, um, in, if you don't know, Broken Leg, um, that family is a, a famous family um, in the Episcopal Church, so it's worth worth looking up. Um, it's, it's a very distinguished family um, that's worth worth knowing about. That that. Um, but you're describing a, an Episcopal priest um, who is, you know, your grandfather's generation um, wouldn't necessarily have had that language in the greater Episcopal church, mm -hmm. right, to understand uh, gender and sexuality in that way. Um, can you, and, and I think there might be an assumption for those of us that don't live on reservations that the church, and I know you hint, and you talk about this in your sermon, so you don't have to give that part away, but um, that, uh, that the church comes from the outside and is the outside culture. And that's not been my experience on reservations, but can help us to understand how, um, how there's a priest two generations ago that knows that their grandson is, uh, is two-spirit and, and makes the connections um, in the Episcopal Church so that, that when the time comes, they're supported by their culture. How did that happen? That's a really good question. I think part of it is, you know, my grandpa's generation, he was in boarding school. So his generation, there was a time before boarding school for him where he grew up speaking his language and stuff. And then when he got, to, and understanding the culture from that very native sense. And in our, our um, my family, the medicine people, like before we were priests, we were medicine people going back. Um, and so there's always been the strong spiritual, whatever you want to call it. But uh, so I think he understood the culture from, from that piece and then going away to boarding school and then becoming a priest. He always kept that nativeness. I think there's this, the old theology that I think maybe would be the generation before him and maybe some people in his generation also had that with this idea that, um, so I'm trying not to go on too many tangents, but like, St. Paul, in the original question, was must one become a Jew before one becomes a Christian? That was the question, right? And Paul says, no, you don't have to do that, right? And I think part of the problem with colonization is when they brought the white Jesus, <laughs> they thought that you must become white before you can become Christian. And they forget. And so I think that sort of got pushed on us. And so... Um, let me come back now. Then, so my grandpa, I think, was in the that generation where that was kind of pushed, but he didn't do that. He was like, you can be both fully Lakota and fully Christian. Um, and so I think 
and plus he went to CDSP, which was in San Francisco, oh, so he probably had a very different, <laughs> different you know, than if he had gone to somewhere else. Um, and so he had lots of experience with LGBT people, I think, uh, going to seminary there, at least some experience anyway. And, um, and so he was very, a very stern man, but also at the same time, he also, I think, well, there were times where like, he would have that question about like, you know, how are we interpreting this? And I remember one time as a kid, I asked him, somebody in class, we were talking about Jesus in class, and um, this is a regular public school, but they were like, you know, if, I can't remember if they said Adam and Eve, but basically if Adam and Eve are the first man and woman, doesn't that mean somewhere incest had to happen along the line? Which is a good question that a kid might ask, right? And so I asked my grandpa, and he was like, well, you know, these are, these are just stories that help us understand how we make sense of the world. They're not meant to be taken literally. And I was like, oh. And that was like the first time that ever, you know, hit whatever. But um, he's just very thoughtful and he didn't like, wasn't like, don't be asking questions. Like, you know, he never said that or whatever. He's much more like, whatever. But anyway, I hope that, did yeah, that answer great. Great. <laughs> Basically, your grandfather was amazing. Yeah. I'd love my yeah. grandpa, yeah. Yeah, I do too. Um, so tell, tell us about the work you do. Um, how did you um, find yourself in the space of racial reconciliation in the Episcopal Church? And, and tell us about your work today. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think doing racial reconciliation work is just happens, just happens because of who I am. I think like I'm I'm half Lakota and half white, and so you know I have like the colonizer and the colonized both. You know, in in. And then also being in that two-spirit role, we're called to see the different sides of something and called to be in that space. And um, growing up having sort of to walk between those worlds of the white world and the native world and the two different families and all of that piece, I think. And then um, I was on the anti-racism committee for the Episcopal Church and I've done work around, a lot of the work I did in epidemiology was around race and how to sort of translate from like a Western public health standpoint to a, a indigenous health idea. Like, uh, so allopathic medicine or Western medicine would be like, you know, you are sick because you have a virus or a bacteria or whatever, and therefore you're gonna do this thing. And the doctor's taught to have this professional distance and all this stuff. Whereas in the Lakota culture, we would say you're sick because you're out of balance or you're not in, in right relationship with something. And um, our, healers or medicine people are taught to be very close like that should be someone who you who you trust and who you know that are living their life in a good way and that's how you know that they're giving you good advice when when you go to them um whereas you know doctors you don't always know how they live their life right um and uh having done this work I, growing up in south dakota there's there's a, a lot of conflict i think between the white churches and the native churches, not so much anymore as it was in the past, but it used to be very, very bad. And my grandpa's generation, he had the same degree, MDiv from, from CDSP, but he was paid less than the white priests. Um, and even though that's changed now, they have to pay him equally. You know, when you retire, what you make is based on what you earn. And so even in retirement, that same disparity still happened, you know. Um, and, uh, and so I think that desire for justice or that desire for whatever is there. Um, and again, uh, I never thought I would have this job, honestly. I remember uh, when this job opening happened, Paul, or not Paul, Brad was like, hey, you, have you thought about this? What do you think about applying? And I was like, what? Blah, 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 no. And then 
he was like, well, just, just do it. And so I did, and then I never, I never expected to get it. And then I got a phone call. Like, you know, everything in the church goes slowly. Every church is kind of how we work, right? Not us. And so, okay. <laughs> and so they were like, you know, I, I think I just assumed, you know, I applied nothing. And then I got a, a phone call for an interview, like, a couple months later. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Um, and then I remember in the interview, they were like, one of the questions was like, why do you think you'd be the best person for this job? And my answer was, well, I'm probably not the best person for this job. <laughs> I, was like, I, was like, I was like, you know, this is a, a discernment process. You have to figure out who you think you would you know, fit, and I have to decide that. And, and I don't know if that's how I, I don't know if that's why I got it. I don't know why I got it, but I was, when I got offered, I was like, I almost was like, are you sure? <laughs> but that's how I got into the work. And I care a lot about it. And I love working in communities. I love working with people. Um, most epidemiologists, sit back behind a computer and put print out reports, and that's not really who I am, which is why I loved working with the tribes. It was like relationships that you built, and I think that's the key of my theology and the key of our church is all about relationships. That's what Jesus did. It's the core of the gospel. How are we building relationships with others? How are we in right relationship with each other? And where we are not in right relationship, how are we trying to get there? Um, and I think uh, that's the door. It's like you can work in a community and they could say, hey, we have this situation. And you can say, okay, well, I have this set of skills. I'm not going to come in and save you, but I have this set of skills and we can work together to see how we can collaborate and partner. Um, and that was kind of the model we used of public health when we were doing that work on reservation. And that's kind of the model I use uh, for the church too, is how, how can we collaborate? Where can we partner? Um, what kind of... Um, things do we have that we can learn from each other it's not meant to be like this top-down kind of thing it's meant to be very much more relational um, and uh, how can we come back into right relationships so in Lakota there's this word wo Lakota which is the state when all things are in right relationship so when we are in right relationship with ourselves when we are in right relationship with each other with God and when we are in right relationship with creation and that wo at the beginning of wo Lakota means uh, that it's an action. And, it, and so being an action, it's not something that's magically going to happen just because the Holy Spirit wants it to happen. It's that we have to take action in order to make it happen, right? And so if you ask somebody what Lakota means, they will tell you that word means friend. But what it really means is the people who are seeking that right relationship with everyone, which of course is what a friend would do, right? Friend of the greatest sense. So if you have questions, I'd encourage you to move towards a microphone now. I'm going to ask one more question while, while y'all... Cue that up so that someone's over there. I know Neil's got a question. Maybe it's Patty this time. Um, so, so it's a big it's a big question for me. Um, like one of the ways we think about gender and sexuality at a, at a church is that there are always young people being raised in our communities, discerning their gender and sexuality, and in every generation. Um, so in, in I guess, so I, I come from a community that if we go back far enough, there's some really good understanding. Of, of in, in profound ways that you were joining your ancestors, but we have we'd have to dig a bit. Frankly, the church has taken us somewhere else. Capitalism has taken us somewhere else. Colonialism. Um, I, I, if I could choose for our communities and our churches, I would want that that our children are always hearing from us, or someone that walks into this church for the first time, um, a, a broad enough sense of what's possible in their lives. Um, that they can, that they feel, at least in this church, in our church spaces, um, truly free to explore who they are and come into that understanding. In a culture that doesn't want that for them necessarily, how how do you how do you foster that in a church community? That's a really good question. Um, 
I think one is just allowing children to be themselves and giving them, uh, giving them the, 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 the freedom to do that. I think that's a very uh, indigenous way of education too. We might ask questions, we might tell stories, but it's up to the child to, to figure out what the moral, if there's a moral of that story is. Um, I'm gonna answer your question sort of, but in Lakota, we don't have pronouns. There's no pronouns in Lakota language. So it's not, your gender is not put onto you, but men speak differently than women. Mm -hmm. And so actually the word wink day, which is the word for uh, the two-spirit world that I'm in, means talks like a woman. And so it's like a male-bodied person who talks like a woman. So then you know that I'm in that two-spirit world because I would speak like a woman. And when you say speak like a woman, you mean words, like different vocabulary. Yeah, or endings to vocabulary. So like, you know, the root of thank you is palamaya. As a boy, you would say palamaya yellow. As a girl, you would say palamaya yay. Um, if you were talking about the verb to eat, you might say utapi as a woman, utapo as a man. There's like a different, it's a different, different structure of things. And, um, and so you would know that person's gender based on how they would speak. And I wish that was something like that, because I feel like we impose gender on children from, from the time they're born and we don't really, how do we give them space to do that? Mm. Um, and I think as a child is growing up, uh, if they were speaking Lakota natively, then you know they might start talking like their mom or their grandma, and someone might say, "Oh," and they, you know you don't you don't control them to tell them to do that. But one of the things, the other thing I'm going to say, which isn't really answering your question, is in the our word for child, wakanja, uh, is the same word that we use for sacred wakan, and it's like the sacred ones. And so I think it's so important. It reminds us the sacredness of, of children, but also that they they uh, are so important, and it's and it's so important to give them their space to be able to and freedom to be who they are, um, and that they have things to teach us too. It's not just about us teaching them. Thank you. Um, can you tell us anything about how, you know, the the word creation care is in the name at the at the end of where you. How does your Lakota background help you bring a different perspective into that process in the church? Sure. So uh, I, my job is to work on racial reconciliation, not necessarily creation care, but you know, our whole team, we care about everything, um, but there's a different person who handles creation care. Um, in our, I'm trying to think how best to answer this. In the Lakota language, we have a phrase, mitakoyo yasi, which means we are all related or all my relatives. It's what we say when we end a prayer. Um, and that, that when we say we are all related, we're not just talking about people, we're talking about all of creation, so plants and animals and all of that. And remember when I talked about wo Lakota and the right relationship, right? That means right relationship with everything, right? So it should be, so that we should always be thinking about that. And if we think about, um, the environment or the earth or whatever, um, the trees outside, the water, those are our relatives. And so you have to be a good relative. I think that's the overarching message of the gospel. Um, not just to your neighbor that's a human being, but to your, all of your neighbors and all of your relatives, right? And I think that's how you have to think about how it informs us. That being said, uh, you will see a lot of environmentally unhealthy things happening on reservations, and a lot of that is about poverty. If our churches don't have running water, 
and don't have electricity, well, guess what? We're gonna be using disposable plates and plastic silverware because we don't have any dishwasher and, you know. Um, and so you'll see some of that come into place. Because somebody, somebody's asked me that, they're like, this seems inconsistent. I'm like, yes, and this is why it's like that. Thank you, Thank you for coming. Um, I have two questions, very selfish curiosity. And the first is, was it your father or mother who was white? Uh, my father's Lakota, my mother's white. Okay, but it was your father you split from. Yeah, I so um, he, as many oppressed folks do, struggled with uh, some addiction and historical trauma, uh, you know, brings about things like abuse and, you know, domestic violence and stuff like that. And so I think, well, he... Ideally, I think, have been brought up in this idea that those folks are sacred. I think there's all these other things that come into play that affected that. And my other question is, I've been through sacred ground, and I am curious, with your involvement with it, are you pleased with how it's going, frustrated that it's not more pervasive? Um, I, for one, learned so much in it that I feel like i got to crawl in a hole and keep studying and just not fritter away my time. But I'm curious how you, as one of the uh, designers... Oh, I didn't design it. I came on well after. Katrina, Katrina is the one who designed it, but um, I love Sacred Ground. I've been through uh, all the sessions I went through it, and I learned from it, too. And I, my major in college, one of them was uh, multicultural studies. And I, was like, and I was like, oh, I didn't know this. Oh, and I didn't know that. And what did it like? That whole thing about, like, the, I think it was the Chinese having to only be able to work one plot of thing and having to dig deep. I was like, oh, I never even heard of that. Um, I am very pleased with where it's going. We, it's been in thousands, literally thousands of sacred ground groups have, ha have happened, and that's amazing. If you think about how many, how many congregations we have in our church and, and how, how much it's, it's, folks have taken up. One thing, and the other piece is like we've had folks of, it wasn't designed for folks of color, but we've had folks of color taking it, and, and so now we've, we've started to adjust it to have some sort of pieces specifically for them, even though it wasn't designed like that in the first place. And so sometimes people are like, well, why isn't there stuff for folks of color? I'm like, well, it's because it wasn't designed for folks of color. Um, and, uh, but now that's changing, you know, with this new, the new curriculum that's coming out. And, um, you know, of course, I'm very biased about this, but of course I think there should be way more about indigenous stuff. And, uh, and when we did it on the, uh, in North and South Dakota, we sort of talked about that. Here are the pieces that we would add in, and I think the new curriculum has some of that in there. Um, one thing that I think can happen sometimes is the folks of sacred ground, they get educated, and then they do crawl in the hole, and they just keep educating and educating <laughs> rather than actually doing the work that needs to get done. And so uh, everybody seems to think, like I get phone calls a lot, and, or emails, and they'll be like, so we've done sacred ground. What's the next step in this process? And I'm like, well, you know, it's unique to you. Each community is, is unique. But I was like, the next step in the process is you going out and, and building relationships within and across your communities. Um, get to know the folks in your neighborhood. Um, what's there, and how are you in a relationship with them, and, and where are they struggling with whatever it is, and, and where are you struggling, or where are your gifts, and how do those things align, and how can you work together? How can you build relationships? And it sounds like you guys have relationships here with Ebenezer yep, Church and a couple other places, and so thinking about that and then finding out that will help guide the work that, that needs to happen. Thank you. Yeah. 
Is, is evangelism in your department? Is that a different department? No, that's still under Stephanie Spellers, but that's a different department. So there's one of the interesting combinations right now in the Episcopal Church, which won't be forever, I think be, um, because of who Stephanie Spellers is, that racial justice, uh, is that what it's called? Sorry, I'm thinking, maybe it's there's right. racial, reconciliation, racial reconciliation, racial justice, and creation care. And creation care and evangelism are coordinated under one person. And I think that's exactly right. Like this should drive us out into the world mm -hmm. in a more effective witness, frankly, a more accurate witness. Um, and it's a wonderful combination. It's a powerful combination. Um, I'm going to ask another. Per yeah. Tell us about your shirt. Oh, okay. <laughs> so hold on, let me model. Yeah. Clergy <laughs> <laughs> okay. shirts aren't often that interesting. As well. So um, across. Indian country, which is a fancy way of saying like reservations and urban Indians and, and like Native America, let's say. Uh, uh, in a lot of cultures, we have what are called ribbon shirts. And so um, sometimes the shirt is like handmade, like actually the shirt part is handmade, but I'm, mm, that's not me. And, um, and then we add ribbons to them and they're worn um, for like special occasions, uh, funerals, weddings, stuff like that. And um, and I wanted a clergy one, right? And I, of course, you just can't find those anywhere. And so I just I made it. Um, and so I got some bright colors and put ribbons on the back. And I've got my little buffalo on it. And it's so pretty. <laughs> yeah. That would be. So I didn't make the shirt, but I I embellished the shirt with the. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not cool like that. <laughs> Does anyone have a final question? Because we, um, we probably have a few more minutes left. I have many. And I want to make sure that everyone's asked what they'd like to ask. So I'll wrap it up for us. Um, so here in Atlanta, we, we, this church does have, it has a lot of relationship. It has a great history of serving its community. Um, but one of the great things about this church is it's always discerning who it's supposed to be in this time. Right? Mm. It's not a place that sits on its laurels. And we're, we're pretty earnest about that. Um, so do you see particular charisms for the church in this time or calls for the church in this time? Mm, that is a good question. I, yes. Um, and it sounds like the thing that I'm about to say doesn't really make too much sense for St. Luke's, but um, what I see a lot of churches doing is this holding to what they perceive as the standard of the church, which is like this, like, oh, we've got to keep our building, and we've got to blah, 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 blah. And they're just like this nostalgia that just holds them back from everything that really Christ calls us to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, when, when Jesus came and called the fishermen, you know, he said, leave your nets. He didn't, you know, he didn't say, oh, we've got to keep our nets. We've always had our nets already. You know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> And so we have to, I think as churches, we, we sometimes hold to these structures that we really have to let go of. And I think that, that letting go can free us to actually find what, what we're meant to do. And, um, and it's important to do that from time to time. Uh, so I'm gonna go back to my culture, I do that all the time. But uh, we, 
do other people call it a vision quest, but it's, we actually call it crying for a vision, but going to sit on the hill. So periodically when you have struggles, you, you go up and there are these different sacred sites and you, and you go and you, you have to let go of everything. Like when back in the day, if you would do it, you wouldn't have any clothes on. You would just go and it's just you and God and, um, and you're there to pray and, uh, and to discern the creator's calling for you. And I think we as churches, I think need to do that from time to time too and really think about it. And I think all of our fears about how much money we have or how we're gonna keep our building or you know, how you know, there's so few people in church and all of that stuff, those fears prevent us from letting go and actually discerning what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's where I'm seeing, I guess that's my answer. That is a good word, everybody. Um, as we, we are in the middle of a vision and mission process, so everybody please take these words to heart as we, um, we might have to rethink everything. Thank you. Um, that's exactly right. I, um, get your tissues ready um, and get ready for church. Um, and if you aren't here today, please um, please go watch the sermon if you're not going to be there in person. And I'm just going to tell you, get um, and share it with your friends. It's the, it's the conversion of hearts that we all need. Can you help me to thank Shaniqua for being with us? I always feel weird when everybody's clapping and I'm not. I feel, <laughs> I feel when everybody's clapping and I'm not clapping. I feel like I should be clapping.